Our reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 14. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another in any of, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Before we get into this passage, uh, I've got a quick uh, question that I'd like you to chat about with uh, a person next to you. What's some good advice you've been given about dealing with conflict? So think about that for a moment. If you've got an idea, share it with the person next to you. We'll come back together in about 30 seconds. All right, let's uh, come back together. Is anyone willing, uh, you don't have to, and if you do, please do it in a loud voice, is anyone willing to share briefly uh, that piece of advice? Oh, yep, we've got one. Happy wife, happy life. Happy wife, happy life. Good. (laughs) Okay. To deal with it? Yeah, to... Yep, to, to face up to it rather than just ignoring it. Yep. Keep calm. Keep calm. Yep. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. Yep, all good things. Yep, Sven. Kerry said listen before you speak. Listen before you speak. Yep. Hold those thoughts. Uh, this is going to be our theme for today, but let me uh, pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, I give each of us faith to receive your word now, understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Our family moved down to Shell Harbour about five and a half years ago as I became uh, the minister here at City Anglican. And as we moved down, we moved from a townhouse into a a house and, and I was kind of got into gardening. Uh, since moving down. So I'm not sure it's because we've got more gardener, I'm just you know, older and this is what you do. Uh, but I've learned some helpful lessons. And so the first lesson was that weed killer 
doesn't just kill weeds. It turns out that it kills everything, which I feel would have been good to emphasise in bold on the label. Uh, because by the time I had finished uh, vigorously uh, purging anything that looked weed-like in our lawn, what I was left with is just uh, barren, dead crop circles. Uh, and so, so that was a valuable lesson. But the principle was still sound, that if you're going to have a healthy garden or a healthy lawn, you need to get rid of the bad stuff like weeds and, and pests, and you need to feed with good stuff like you know, water and fertiliser. And that's equally true for the Christian life. And that's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks with our topic of you know, habits that help us grow. It is about doing what is good and creating positive habits, but it's also getting rid of those things that hold us back. And we see that in our passage that we've just read. So the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul and he's writing to a church in the city of Colossae and he's writing to Christians. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So whatever comes next in this passage, Paul is writing to Christians. Uh, for us, uh, Jesus isn't just a wise teacher who lived 2,000 years ago, and he didn't just teach us good morals where we can sort of pick and choose the ones that we like. Uh, he's the one who paid the price for our sin on the cross. He died in our place, rose again, and he is now the present living Lord. And when we become a Christian, there is a mutual commitment. So we committed, commit to submitting to his authority and through his spirit, he commits to helping us honour that commitment and he secures and guarantees our future. So to continue in our passage, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a lot in those words, who is your life? Jesus is the one who gives us life. Jesus is the one we live for. And Jesus is the one who secures our eternal life. So as Christians, our identity isn't defined by our work or our financial success. It's not about our romantic relationships or friendships or even family. Our identity fundamentally is in Christ. And when we understand who we are in Christ, that gives all those other good things and those wonderful life experiences meaning. But it also shapes how we approach life. And so as we continue to read our passage, we have two lists. Uh, things that we should drown in weed killer and things that we should just drown in water. So he goes on to say, put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. But wait, there's more. If you look a bit further down, also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. 
So this is the stuff of death. And Paul is saying, don't feed them. Don't poke them with a stick and see if they bite. Don't try to find a loophole exemption to justify yourself. Get rid of them. This is who we were, but this is not who we are now in Christ. So if this is the stuff that we need to put to death, then to sort of mix metaphors a little bit, Paul then goes on to talk about all the things that we should clothe ourselves with, all the stuff that we should put on. So clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. When we look at those two lists, you'd think it would be self-evident about which one is better. And yet so often we gravitate to those things that bring death. And often that first list is what's celebrated in our culture. So pornography is celebrated as sexual freedom. Uh, lust is simply being true to yourself. Greed is getting all the good things that you deserve. And we justify our anger and slander as righteous because we're right and the other person is wrong. But out of all of these attitudes and behaviours that we should put on and put off, I think there's one that bridges both of those lists. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I think it bridges those lists because it acknowledges that sin is still part of the Christian life. So that first list is going to keep rearing its ugly head. It's kind of like that game Whack-A-Mole. If you've ever been to a carnival, yeah, you know where the little moles keep popping up and you, you get the baton and you, you keep whacking them down. Just when you think you've dealt with one, you know, another one pops up. And instead of the same with sin, we feel like we've dealt with one area of sin in our life, but sure enough, there's something else. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit. We are works in progress, but we are clearly and self-evidently not perfect. Of course, you know, not all conflict is a result of sin. Sometimes it's just difference of, a, of opinion and expectations. But even then, how we deal with those differences can often then con become a consequence where you know, sin, we fall into sin. But whatever the root cause, inevitably conflict doesn't stay contained, does it? You know, whenever there's conflict around us, people talk. Uh, we take sides, their anger and hurt becomes our anger and hurt. And invariably, again, we feel we're right and they're wrong. And so to overextend my illustration, we shouldn't be surprised when sin keeps popping up and we should be ready to whack it on the head, uh, but not with self-righteous anger, which is perhaps our natural inclination, but with forgiveness. Uh, it may well be more painful up front and often Dealing with conflict is a process and not just an event. But the ultimate goal is forgiveness and reconciliation. And when we're the ones in the wrong, that process can be humbling, um, perhaps even humiliating, but it will bring us to a much better place uh, relationally uh, with each other, but also relationally with God. So let me see if I can put together a little bit of a, a biblical framework for forgiveness and reconciliation. 
For starters, forgiveness and reconciliation require all parties to be involved. You can't have forgiveness without repentance. And so we need to be willing to call out sin and we need to be willing to forgive sin. So this is what Jesus says about forgiveness. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to say, I repent, you must forgive them. I don't think anyone likes the idea of rebuking. Uh, It's socially awkward, it's relationally painful, and it sounds just so judgmental. If you know your Bible a little bit, then you'll know these words, do not judge and you will not be judged. Uh, We often read a version of those words in media articles about how Christians should be more embracing of different social values. And I think our secular media like it because it aligns nicely with the permissive individualistic values of our culture. The verse sounds like it's saying that we should never make any negative judgment about another person's behaviour. But I think that's a misunderstanding of the verse. Of course we should challenge wrong behaviour, and particularly amongst Christians. It is right to say that lying is wrong. Cheating on your wife or your husband is wrong. Murder is wrong. Racism is wrong. Jesus calls out our sin all the time. And particularly when he's talking to self-righteous religious people. And self-righteousness is really the point of this verse. Self-righteousness is where we posture ourselves as better than others. Where where we're outraged at their sinfulness, but we completely ignore our own problems and our own sin. Uh, That's self-righteousness. That's what it looks like to be genuinely judgmental. So if we're going to rebuke someone then we need to start recognising that we're certainly no better than anyone else. And so we come to it from a position of humility. Uh, We start by recognising the log in our own eye before we start talking about the speck in someone else's. But Christ calls us to an even more radical approach to forgiveness. And this is what I find, I I suppose, particularly confronting as I was reflecting on this this week. Because not only should we come humbly calling out someone else's sin, we should come selflessly, where our motivation is not primarily about our anger and hurt, it's about them and genuinely wanting to see them honour Christ. Now that's uh, relatively easy to say now when I'm calm and I'm standing here at church but much harder in real life. Because in the moment, I'm not really not thinking about their good. I'm thinking about how angry I am, how hurt I am, how betrayed I feel. And so in the moment, I'm feeling it's all about me and I'm thinking very little about them, except how they make me feel. And then, to make it even harder... Christ calls us to pursue reconciliation. So it doesn't matter whether we are the sinner or the one sinned against, we are told to actively seek each other out and to have that honest conversation. 
and to seek reconciliation. And certainly that's what Christ has done for us. There's this story in the book of Hosea about a husband and an unfaithful wife. And it's a living metaphor for God and his relationship with his people. Uh, God isn't just ready to forgive, he woos. So it says, she decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's an amazing image, isn't it? Uh, Particularly if you think about the context of unfaithfulness. That how does the, the wronged person respond? How does the wronged God respond? He woos and pursues. Uh, Another good example of the principle is uh, perhaps less emotive, but where Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come back and offer your gift. So what should forgiveness look like? Uh, fundamentally, I think it's about the attitude of our heart and choosing to not hold the past against someone. It's letting go of bitterness and hurt and anger and coming to a place where you want good for that person and godliness for that person. But it's complicated, isn't it? Uh, Forgiving the past doesn't necessarily mean we go back to the way things were for the future. Uh, The best outcome... Uh, for forgiveness is a reconciliation of the relationship. So there might be scars, but the relationship continues and perhaps becomes even stronger uh, as it works through all of those difficulties. Uh, But sometimes it's more complicated. So, for example, forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. In terms of God forgiving us, the justice came at the price of his son dying on the cross. If we hit someone with our car because we're texting while we're driving, they might forgive us in terms of their attitude towards us, but there are still consequences for what we've done. We may well still go to jail. Uh, If we are unfaithful in our marriage, the other person might forgive us and there might be reconciliation. But equally, there might be forgiveness and perhaps relational respect, Uh, but no reconciliation of the marriage. The the relationship might be dealt with, but the circumstances have changed. And certainly if there is abuse, forgiveness doesn't mean that we place ourselves in the same situation where it can happen again. And if the abuser is genuinely repentant, then they should expect it. But within all those caveats and the need for wisdom and recognising that forgiveness is a painful journey or can be a painful journey... I don't want us to lose sight of the goodness of forgiveness and our commitment to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Not out of a sense of obligation because this is what I should do because the Bible says I should do it, but as a a genuine response to God's spirit working where we have a desire for love and compassion and mercy. And if the other person doesn't want forgiveness, then the best we can do is have an attitude where we are willing to forgive. What we shouldn't do, I think, though, is, is have that, use that unwillingness as an excuse to hold on to bitterness. Now, we think we're punishing them, uh, but ultimately it doesn't honour God. And actually, for the most part, 
uh, we're just punishing ourselves. And if we're the ones who have sinned, and if they are unwilling to forgive us, then we still seek forgiveness. We still repent before God, and then we demonstrate what genuine repentance looks like. We change our behaviour. We live a different life. It doesn't mean things will always go back to being the way they were, but we show that we are genuinely sorry. So to finish, I thought it'd be helpful to offer just a few practical ideas to help us deal with conflict in a way that honours God and loves the other person. And so we've already got a bunch of ideas. Uh, Here are five that come to mind. I certainly don't think they're the only five. Uh, I'm not even sure if they're the top five. Uh, But they're five that uh, I think are significant. Uh, They're they're not law, they're they're wisdom, uh, and and you can weigh that up for yourself. Uh, The first one sounds very negative, but expect to be disappointed. Uh, That's not saying we should be defeatist and give up trying to be better. It's not an excuse for sin, but it does acknowledge what Paul has acknowledged in this passage that we will continue to sin as Christians, and that means we will continue to disappoint one another. And if that is our expectation, then we are going to be better prepared to respond constructively when it happens. Uh, Secondly, start with the gracious assumption that not everything is intentional or malicious. Uh, Me forgetting to pick up Sarah after work is annoying, Uh, But it's not a statement and it's not me prioritising my needs over her needs. It's just that I have a memory of a goldfish. And so I forget and I get preoccupied and and, and all those other things. But of course, if we're going to have the gracious assumption, it is much easier when there is trust. If I have a track record of forgetting to pick up Sarah after work then it's going to be very hard for her to have a gracious assumption that I am just forgetful. So we spare ourselves a lot of conflict when we have a track record of being trustworthy, where we do what we say and we say what we mean, and then when things go wrong, the gracious assumption that it's a mistake and not something deeper or more personal. Uh, The last two are about communication. Uh, We will have more success dealing with conflict if we are willing to express how we feel rather than telling people how they feel. So if someone says, you only ever think about yourself and you don't respect me, then uh, firstly, it makes the other person feel accused. And when we feel accused, we tend to get defensive. And so that's off to a bad start. Uh, But secondly, it's making everything their problem. Whatever this conflict is, this is all your fault and you need to fix it. And again, not a great start to conflict resolution. I think a more constructive posture is telling people how we feel. Uh, I don't mean you make me feel like, insert expletive, uh, still not very helpful, but how do we share the problem together? You know, something along the lines of, you know, I feel disrespected when you don't let me finish what I'm saying. You know, that sort of language lowers the temperature of the conversation. It takes me assuming, it takes away me assuming their motivations. And the other person can't deny how I'm feeling. They are my feelings. But all of it, hopefully, you're creating an environment where you can listen and where you can talk. 
And then finally, stay on topic. Uh, Sometimes, no matter how graciously it's expressed, even with I feel kind of language, uh, we still feel accused. And and this might be more male than female, not sure. But when we feel accused, we tend to then go on the counter-offensive. You know, so we'd say things like, well, you don't like being cut off in a conversation. Then imagine how I felt when you embarrassed me last week at dinner. And you kind of go, that may well be true, and you may well have felt hurt and embarrassed, but that's not the topic of this conversation. And so I think things like that uh, help us have more constructive conversations than less constructive uh, certainly, uh, as I think about you know, how Sarah and I relate uh, together, these are things we try to put in practice. Uh, sometimes we do it well, uh, plenty of times uh, we don't do it well. Uh, but they are still good things. Uh, they're things where we are seeking to love the other person. And for all of these practical ideas, they sit on the foundation of recognising that we need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. He's the one we want to honour. He's the one we want to imitate as we deal with conflict and as we seek forgiveness and ultimately reconciliation. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we do thank you that you love us. We thank you that in our sin uh, that you are gracious and merciful and that you forgive us and that you made it possible through your son. And so, Lord, we pray that we might have that same attitude, that we might have a desire to forgive others. And, Lord, we we recognise that doesn't come naturally. We recognise it doesn't come easily. But, Lord, we pray with your help and by your spirit that you might give us the capacity to forgive and to love uh, for your sake, for their sake, for our sake. Amen.